All right, so is Jesus God? Is the person of Jesus God, and why does that even matter to answer that question and to have an answer to that question? That's where we're going today over the next couple of minutes, uh, and so just kind of a warning right from the get-go that today's message is going to be a little bit um, maybe more on the theological side. We're going to kind of wade into some of like the deeper waters of Christianity. Uh, a lot of times like we'll talk, and we always try to drive our teaching towards like hey, you know, this is what we do, this is how we live, and, and that's important, um, but today it's not so much about you, it's not so much about me, it's a whole lot about Jesus, and um, we're going to get some application out of that, but it's very, very, uh, again, it's going to be kind of a lot of verses, fire hydrant, okay, so just, ah, and just get ready to get blasted. We've got to work through it quick, all right, so everybody ready to go? Well, there's like two of you who are ready to go at least. Woo! Way to go, you two. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of all of you, okay? Not everybody's as excitable. I get that. I get that. All right. So we're going through the Gospel of John as a church. Um, we've been kind of working through it, taking breaks now and then. And so that's where we're going to be today. We're going to be in John chapter 5, verses 16 through 30. So if you've got a Bible or a mobile device, you can grab a Bible at the back of the room. We're going to have words on the screen as well, all kinds of options. Um, but to set the stage for what is going to be happening today, the last couple of weeks we've been looking at a time where Jesus... He heals a guy who is paralyzed. This guy's been paralyzed for 38 years. And so Jesus shows up and he heals this guy and it's this miracle and it's amazing. But there, there's kind of like a little caveat that, that he heals him on the Sabbath. And to the Jewish people, the Sabbath day was the day they were to rest. They weren't to do any work. Uh, and so this accusation gets lobbed at Jesus then that he's breaking the Sabbath, that healing someone was considered work. Now, that, that wasn't actually work according to God's law, but kind of uh, religious leaders had, had kind of waded into legalism and hypocrisy, and it became very much about follow the rules, do these things, and here's all these additional rules we're going to give you to live by. Uh, and so they, they go to Jesus, and they're like, hey, listen, you're breaking the Sabbath. By you healing this guy, you can't do that. It's wrong. And Jesus is going to give kind of a defense of why he healed on the Sabbath and why that's not a problem and what authority he has to do that. And within that defense, we're going to see some really key things about the identity of Jesus. And so we're just going to jump in, starting in verse 16. We'll unpack as we go. Again, he's just healed a, a paralyzed guy. And says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the healing of the paralyzed man, and a lot of other things as well. Like there's a theme you'll see if you read throughout the Gospels that Jesus does things on the Sabbath, and the religious leaders are like, you can't do that, you can't do that. And he just keeps going like, watch me, <laughs> I'm doing that. Um, but because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I, too, am working. And for this reason, they tried to all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, making himself equal with God. That, that phrase, calling God my father, they were like, whoa, triggered, cannot say that. Now, it wouldn't have been that, that strange or that offensive to them for these religious leaders to refer to God as our father. They did that often as the religious leaders, um, this kind of collective identity that as a collective people, the nation of Israel, um, they were referred to collectively as a nation, as God's son sometimes. So to say our father was acceptable, but when Jesus says my father, he's, he, he's, they would have understood that for him to be making an exclusive claim about his relationship with God, something that was different about him than anyone else. And the verb usage there, like making himself equal, it's like this active present tense thing. So in other words, this wasn't a one-time event. You made yourself equal with God. No, it's like a, you keep doing this, stop doing that. You're continually making yourself equal with God. And this idea, I would argue, is one of the most significant ideas 
in human history. I would say there's probably nothing else that has changed or shaped the world like the claim that Jesus is God. That a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who by all accounts, by every historian, whether they're religious or not, there's virtually no debate anymore around, was Jesus of Nazareth a real person? Yes, he was. He lived at this time. He did the things that he did. The claim that that guy walked the earth and was actually God in the flesh. That is one of the most culture-shifting, world-changing ideas that has ever entered into human history, and it's changed the world. And it becomes kind of the definitive question of history. It becomes the question that every human being is like, okay, we got to wrestle with this, we got to answer this, we gotta, we gotta, um, we got to figure this out, like, who do we say Jesus is? No matter who you are, you're here, you're watching online, maybe you're a Christian, maybe you're questioning, maybe you're, you don't buy any of this, every human being needs to ask that question, who do I think Jesus is? What's undeniable is that he is the most significant person in human history. Like, there, no one has changed, shaped the world like he has that a third of the world's population claims some sort of faith in Jesus right now. That even the way that we date things, our calendar revolves around the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. You know, we have BC and AD, or as it's called now, BCE, before the Common Era and the Common Era, but the, the line of demarcation is the person of Jesus. And so we have to ask this question, like, okay, who is this guy? Is he actually God? This is the ultimate centerpiece of Christianity because if the answer is no, then he's just a guy that taught some stuff and just like a bunch of other people. If the answer is no, then he died and he didn't actually uh, raise from the dead. But if the answer is yes, everything changes. So a couple of questions then. Did Jesus make this claim about himself? Did he claim to be God? And then is this something that the early church claimed or not? Because there, there's two kind of pushbacks against this and some skepticism that arises. And maybe you've heard this or maybe you've thought this. Some will say, you know, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Is that true or not? And maybe you've heard as well that the early church didn't believe that, that that was developed in the fourth century. That The church kind of decided, they got together, they had a council, and they're like, we've decided that Jesus is going to be defined. Is that true or not? Did Jesus claim to be God? If you were to say, you know what, Jesus never said, I am God, you'd actually be 100% right he never put the three English words together, I am God. Nowhere in his teaching and his ministry did he show up and say, hey guys, I am God. But if he had said that, it wouldn't have landed with his original audience. Uh, you know, we talk about this a lot as a church. You guys hear me say this almost every week at some point in a message. That when we come to the scriptures, we come to the text, we cannot import our modern way of viewing the world and our context and our culture onto the ancient text. We come to a text as 21st century Americans with our 21st century American lenses on, and we go, this is what it says. But while these words are written for us, they help us, they help us to grow, they help us to learn, they help us to, to be the people that God wants us to be, they were written for us, but they were not written to us. These were not written to 21st century Americans, they were written to 1st century Jewish people. Jesus was a 1st century Jew. The majority of his audience, when he's teaching, when he's explaining things, when he's doing miracles, the people, the crowds that gather around him are first century Jewish people. And so while he may never say, I am God, in the way that a 21st century American would hear it, he says it over and over and over and over again in a way that his culture would understand it. And there is example after example after example we can go through. I just want to kind of look at the text that we're dealing with today or else we'll be here all day and Come on, nobody wants that, right? Um, we'll look at the text that we're dealing with, and the thing I want us to notice in this text, and when you look at other ones, you'll see the same thing, is if you want to know what Jesus meant kind of by what he said, look at how people responded to him. 
Verse 18, look at this. For this reason, they wanted to kill him. What was the reason? Why, what, what set the religious leaders off and said, no, we must kill you right now for this reason? Because he was making himself equal with God. This is why the religious leaders want to kill Jesus. It's not just because, you know, he kind of upset them a little bit. That was true and threatened their power. That was true. It's not just because he was breaking the Sabbath. That's true. He's doing something in their minds that is blasphemy. He, a mere man, and this is said other places, is making himself equal with God, claiming to be God. That is something that, by the way, if he is just a guy, like that is worthy of death in their kind of culture and context. The thing, like, what, what we so often miss, Jesus' original audience saw right away. He says these things, and they're like, whoa, you can't say that. You can't say that. Over and over, Jesus claims to be God. In fact, especially in the Gospel of John, and we'll, we'll kind of, as we explore this Gospel over the next probably two more years, we'll see these instances rise up over and over where Jesus makes statements that specifically point to his deity. Look at the kind of video that plays as I'm getting set up up here. At the end of it, it's John's kind of mission of why he wrote his gospel. It's, it's found at the end of his gospel. He says, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the, the Christ or the Messiah. That is, he's the king, he's the Lord, he's in charge, and the son of God. And so John, over and over, is pointing to the divinity of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus. He has what scholars call a very high Christology that he has this very high and lofty, glorified view of, of Jesus that comes front and center in John's gospel, and we don't actually see it quite as much in the other gospels, although it is there. And, and so people have, have seen that and said, well, maybe John's just, you know, he's just writing late, it's just made up. Um, even, like, conservatively, the dating of the gospel of John at the latest is, like, late first century, so uh, somewhere maybe around 90 A.D., between 70 and 90 so I was like, well, maybe John came along a little bit later and wrote this. Is there, is there any other earlier sources that point to the divinity of Jesus? Did the first followers of Jesus think this way? We can look at the Apostle Paul, and he writes all these letters to different churches in the first century. Paul, who was a Jewish guy, right, who had a view of, okay, we, we have one God, this God, this creator, this almighty, this most high. What does he say about the person of Jesus? Two examples. Like I said, there's dozens, but we don't have time for all of them. One is in his letter to the Philippians. There's a church in a place called Philippi, first century people trying to figure out, okay, the Jesus showed up, God did something in the world, how do we follow him? Uh, Letter to the Philippians is written late 50s to early 60s, so 25 to 30 years after the events of Jesus' uh, life, death, and resurrection. So in 25 to 30 years, Paul is, he's, he's explaining to these people how to live, and he's talking about their relationship with one another, how should you treat each other, how should you relate to each other, and he says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus... And then he says this, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So he's like, you should have the same mindset as as Christ. And who was Jesus? In his very nature. Not like a little God on the side, but at his core, at the nature of who he is, at his very essence, he is God. He goes on to say, even though he was God, he didn't use that, you know, um, to be used to his own advantage. So Jesus didn't show up on the planet like, hey, it's all about me. You should serve me. He didn't like pull the God card, be like, oh, yeah, I'm God, by the way. Okay, you, should, you guys should love me and worship me. He's like, no, he showed up, and, and Paul goes on to say he showed up as a servant. He became obedient to death, even death on the cross. That, that the God of the universe was fully found in Jesus. He took on humanity, and he died. 
How about another example? Maybe late 50s, early 60s is a little too late for you. So how about early 50s? 1 Corinthians, one of the oldest letters that we have. So we're talking 20 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And maybe 20 years seems like a long time to you. If 20 years seems like a long time to you, you're under the age of 20, okay? That's just how that works. For those of us that are older, we're like, yeah, 20 years? I was like yesterday and I'm like you know you know in your mind you stop aging 20 years ago I was 13 and I'm like yeah that was only like holy crap that was 20 years ago right it's just like oh no but 20 years is not that long within 20 years of the life death and resurrection of Jesus Paul talking to followers of Jesus in the city of Corinth they're coming out of the, the kind of Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, paganism, and, and he's like, hey, you guys got to leave that all behind because there's only one God. This is the God you worship, and within that context, he says, yet for us, there is but one. There's only one God. He's the Father, and through this God, this is a very, very Jewish thing to say, that this most high God created everything. Again, Paul's a Jew. He was a Pharisee, that through this God, all things came and for whom we live. So there's only one God who made everything. He's like, he's in a category of his own. But then he says, and. It's like, wait, there can't be one and. And Paul's like, no, yes, yes, there can. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses the same phrase, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So wait, wait, Paul, I thought you said there's one God who's the most high, who's the creator of everything. Yes. But now you're saying there's also Jesus. Yes. Which one is it? Yes. Okay? It's, it's this idea that like, hey, Jesus is God in the flesh through and through and through. Like this is what we call Christian orthodoxy. Things that the church has believed since its inception. It's like within the, these set of beliefs, you're Christian, you step out of these beliefs. And it's like you, you can have those beliefs, but it doesn't fit within what Christianity is. That this teaching from the earliest days is that Jesus is equal with God. He is the son of God. He is God in the flesh. Jesus claimed it and the church proclaimed it. And it was Jesus claiming it in this situation that we are looking at uh, in John's gospel that got the religious leaders so riled up that they wanted to kill him because he's making himself equal with God. And he begins to go into this kind of long monologue of explaining what he's talking about. Verse 19, Jesus gives them this answer, very truly I tell you, there's this little phrase that, that John uses a ton in his gospel. It's translated different ways, so maybe you've heard it very truly or truly, truly, or King James, verily, verily, okay? Um, or even amen, amen. It's this idea of like, I'm about to say something that is really, really significant. It's really important, so don't miss this. So very truly, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking to the religious leaders, the son, speaking about himself, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he does. Jesus is, as wordy as that is, he's beginning to kind of peel back the layers and go a little deeper and, and explain. He's like, okay, I want you to understand what God is like. I want you to understand my relation to the father, as he says. And he begins to get at this idea that within the Christian faith, the way that we view God is that God is one he, he, is, he is set apart, he is one, he's individual, but at the same time, there's a plurality within God. There's a diversity within God. This is the idea of the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Three kind of unique, separate, like people, they have unique identities and unique roles, but yet at the very same time, they are one. Now you try to think about that for too long, and you're like, I'm confused, and my brain hurts. How can something be three and one at the same time? And I'm not going to try to resolve that tension, because anything that I do to try to resolve that tension is going to fall short. 
Like there, there, there comes a point where as people of faith, and sometimes we, we lose this, where you just have to be okay with mystery. Because we are finite humans. We are limited in our capabilities trying to understand an infinite God. And if as a finite human being this limited in my capacities, if I can say I completely understand God, then that God fails to actually be God. That he is greater than we can imagine. Within like the, the more Western church, we're very rationalistic. We, we like logic. We like reason. We like thinking. And those are all beautiful things. Those are good things. But we lose kind of the, the other side of that. That within the more Eastern traditions and the ancient traditions of Christianity, the, the Orthodox Church and the Coptic Church and these other, these deep historical traditions of Christianity there, they embrace the mystery of God. And they marvel and they're like, we don't know. And it's okay. And the Trinity falls into that kind of a category. That God is three, but yet he's one. Maybe you've heard examples of what that looks like. You're like, well, it's like an egg, and there's the, the shell and the white and the yolk. Or it's like water, because you have ice or steam or the liquid water. Or it can be like, you know, me, I'm a, I'm a dad, and I'm a son, and like, I'm, I'm a husband. And it's, no matter what example you try to give, it ends up falling short, because we either make the distinctions too distinct or not distinct enough. And so we just sit and go, okay, the God is three in one. That's what Jesus teaches. That's what he reveals. And so we sit kind of in that mystery, and he explains it in such a way that really would have connected with his culture and still some cultures around the world, maybe not so much ours, in a culture in which the, the males in a family always go into the family business, that there is an idea of apprenticeship. And so this idea that, that a father and his sons, like he would apprentice his children and they would do exactly what he did and he would do that. The reason he would teach his kids is he did it out of this posture of love. And so Jesus is like, hey, let me try to get your minds around the relationship between the father and the son in a way that makes sense to this culture. He's like, it's like I'm in the family business with my heavenly father. Like we, we, are, we are here together because he's just said a little bit ago, here's why it's okay that I'm working on the Sabbath because I and my father are working. We're in the family business. We do the same thing. We have the same will. We have the same heart. This idea, he says, the son can do nothing by himself means that when Jesus shows up on the planet, when he teaches, when he loves people, when he dies for sins, none of that was him just being like, you know, I think this seems like a good idea. I'm going to do this. None of it was God's like, I don't think that's a good idea. But Jesus was like, nah, it's good, Dad. Don't worry about it. It, it was always like they are in lockstep with one another. That, that, that the will of the Father is perfectly seen through the person of Jesus. It's like, I can't do anything on my own because I and the Father were one. We're one. God is three in one. It's this idea of Trinity, and Jesus is trying to unpack the relationship and how that works, at least between the Son and the Father. He's not talking at all about the Spirit in this passage, and we'll cover that throughout this series in John as well at some point. He says we're one. We can't be out of step. And notice kind of the, the thing that drives that oneness, or the thing that drives him being in the Father's will, is that the Father loves the Son. The reason the Father shows him, the, the reason the Father sends him, is that the Father loves the Son. And while it seems kind of dry and it seems kind of theological and like, why are we talking about the Trinity? This idea right here is, is core to everything else that, that Christianity teaches. There's this belief and this idea that within the Trinity, God is three in one, right? And so there has been an eternal love relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit from eternity past to eternity future. That God has been in a love relationship with himself, this intimacy with himself. Maybe you're familiar, it's very... Uh, very popular in Western thought, the idea that God is love, right? God is love, God is love, God is love. That's actually a uniquely Christian idea. That came from something else that, that John wrote, not in his gospel, but in a letter that he wrote. He says that God is love, and we've kind of latched onto that idea, and we like that. 
but the idea that God is love cannot exist outside of the Trinitarian God of Christianity. Because for God to be love at his essence, not just love to be something that he does, means there needs to be a pre-existent love relationship. Love is relational. You can't love without an object to love. And so if God is just like strictly one, he can't actually love and be love until he makes something to love. But in the Christian tradition, it's like, no, God has eternally existed as three in one. From eternity past to eternity future, they are in a love relationship with one another. And so then, how does God create? He creates out of the love that he experiences within himself. He brings humanity out of the love that he experiences within himself. When humanity goes off the rails, he, he sets in motion this plan of reconciliation out of the love that exists within the community that is himself. When he sends the sun to the earth to die for sins, it's, it's, it's out of the overflow of the love that is found within God. And here's the crazy part and let this blow your minds for a little bit if you're a follower of jesus it's like okay god the father sends the son the son dives for sins and i put faith in jesus and the holy spirit the third part of the of the godhead of the trinity comes to live within you and so we are now invited into the love relationship between father son and spirit that has existed from eternity past to eternity future because Jesus says elsewhere, I want, I want them to be one with us, like, like we are one. Like there's this, this, this kind of coming together that we have with God through the forgiveness of sins through Jesus and his Holy Spirit. God is love. Everything is driven out of this position. He says the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. And then he says, yes, um, and he'll, he's going to show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So he's just healed a guy on the Sabbath. He's been doing other things, and he's like, you guys, you've not seen anything yet. Like, like we're, we're just getting started here. You will see even greater works than these, and then he gives them kind of this foreshadowing of what that greater work will be. He says, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but he's entrusted all judgment to the Son. Now, again, let's have our 21st century American glasses off and put on first century Jewish glasses and look at what Jesus says. He says, okay, what's the father do? The father raises the dead. He gives life. And so the son gives life, implication being the son also raises the dead. And the son judges that in the minds of a first century Jew, the idea of raising and judging the dead, that is a divine prerogative reserved for God alone. There is only one with the power to raise the dead. There is only one with the power to, to, to judge and to give life, and it is Yahweh. It is the Most High. And so here we have Jesus again saying to an audience that understood what he was, what he was getting at, that, yeah, you guys, you know, we believe that raising the dead, that giving life, that judging, that's something that only God does. And now he says, and here I am, the Son, and I'm doing these things. And then he says there's a reason for that. There's a heartbeat behind it. And the heartbeat is that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. We're going to get to this towards the end of this, this passage. He's going to get to this idea. But, the, the, but the, the, the core thought is that someday, everyone, every human being that has ever lived, past, present, and future, will honor the Son. That someday everyone will go, okay, you, Jesus, you are God. You are God in the flesh. You are who you claim to be. Someday everyone will have that proclamation and whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent them. That was a crazy thing for him to say. He, he's essentially saying like, listen, the way that you honor God, the way that you worship God is now, it now happens through the person of Jesus. 
talking to, again, Jewish people who've had thousands of years of history that the way they worshiped, the way they honored God, the way they did that was we go to the temple and we make sacrifices and we live a certain way and we believe certain things. Like this is how we honor the Father. And Jesus says that's done. The way that you honor the Father now is by honoring the Son whom he sent. Very truly, I tell you, there's that, that phrase again. He's like, hey, listen up, this is important. In fact, I would say about the next two or three verses are like the hinge point, the key part of this whole passage. He says, very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. You'll notice throughout this passage, this kind of pairing of ideas back and forth with the son and the father and the son and the father. We have it here. It says, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me, bringing the two things together, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but he's crossed over from death to life. He says, whoever hears and believes will live. Whoever hears and believes will live. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And so he's like, guys, listen, there's a time coming. And he's like, wait, actually, scratch that. The time is now. The time has now come when those who are dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who are dead will actually live. He says the, the, the son, when he speaks, he actually speaks life. That, there's a, that there is something that has happened right now where dead people come to life. Now, in the context of what he's talking about, there's this idea this is a, a spiritual death leading in then a, a, a spiritual life. He says those who are spiritually dead, those who are hurt, those who are broken, those who are living under the power of sin and death, those who have this kind of existential, I know there's something more to this earth, I know that I'm made for something more, those who are distant from God. He says if you are in that state, you are dead, and there is a chance for you to live. When the New Ta- Testament talks about those of us that are Christians or followers of Jesus, it says before you knew Christ, you weren't a bad person. You weren't a person that had some issues to fix. He said, no, you were, you were dead people. We're like corpses walking around. He says, if you hear the voice of the Son, you come to life. There's a spiritual awakening that happens. And again, I know I keep saying this, but that, that Jewish audience, there's all these thoughts that would flood into their mind. There's this famous passage in the prophet Ezekiel where, like, there's a valley of dry bones, and it represents the people of God. And there's, it's, a, it's dead people. And when you read the passage, it says, speak to the bones. And when the word of God is spoken to them, just at his word, they come alive and flesh comes on them. And now here Jesus is, is getting at that idea. Those who are dead, when I speak, when they hear my voice, they come to life. That there's new life, there's resurrection life. If you hear, you believe, you come alive, you leave your, your state of death and walk into life. And now he's about to tell us, how is that even possible? How is it that he can make such a bold statement? I mean, picture, picture you're there, and you have this guy standing in front of you, and he's saying, oh, by the way, you're dead, but if you hear my voice, you'll live. You're like, what gives you the right? Like, how can you have the audacity to say something like that? For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Because the father has life in in himself. These these Jewish leaders that he's talking to, there is this core conviction there is only one source of life, that the most high God 
gives life. He breathes life into all living things, and only God does that. So just as the Father has that, so the Son has it as well. That I now I have the authority as the Son of God to give life to whom I please. Just as in the beginning, God is the one that brought about all life, Jesus says, I am here to bring about new life. The source of life is found within him. He says, do not be amazed. <laughs> I like that Jesus can kind of like read his audience as he's talking to them because they're probably like, what? Like, don't, don't be amazed at this. Don't be shocked by this. Don't be surprised at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done what is good will rise to live and those who've done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So now he's kind of shifting his attention to the future. He's juxtaposing these two ideas. A couple of verses ago, he just said, a time is here, a time is now when those who are spiritually dead will come alive. That Jesus has come to call the dead to life, to put faith in him, to have resurrection life, and that offer is here and now. From the time that Jesus walked the planet to this moment that we are sitting in this room or watching this online, Jesus offers always, if you're spiritually dead, I can make you alive. Anywhere, anytime, he has the power to do that. I will make you alive. I'll make you alive. He's like, don't be amazed at that, that I, can, that I can give spiritual life to people. Because a time is actually coming in the future. We've got what's happening now. This spiritual life is given to you. But time is coming in the future where all who are in their graves, where people who are like dead, dead, not just spiritually dead, but like physically dead as well. He said, where all who are in their graves will hear my voice and they're going to come out. They're going to live. Dead people jumping up out of their graves and stuff. And he's like, oh, I've seen too many horror movies. That doesn't sound good. It's not like that, okay? It's not like that. It's not zombies. The core conviction of, of, of Christianity as it relates to the end of the age and where is history going and how does this thing wrap up is not heaven as we think of it in a popular sense. See, heaven to us, we think here's where the story ends. The story ends with us in heaven and heaven is like disembodied floating light orbs. Like we're like, woo. Heaven is like chubby little babies playing harps and clouds and like angels. Like that's the picture that, that culture, like just kind of like art and, and, and literature, that's kind of painted over the generations. That's not the picture that scripture paints. The scripture paints a picture over and over again that you and I, we are physical creatures and our physicality is actually a good thing. It's not something that we're trying to escape. We are meant to be, like these bodies that we have, we are meant to exist in a physical body. And the earth that we live on, we are meant to exist on a physical earth. And that is where the story is going, except they will be physical bodies in a physical earth that has not been tainted and affected by sin and death. And so Jesus is pointing to that day. He says, a time is coming where all of those, everyone who's died will, will raise up again because there's, there's eternal like resurrection life where the story is going. And he says, all who are in their graves will hear his voice. He says, the good and the bad. Everyone is going to rise. That means like, like everyone from Hitler to Mother Teresa jumping up out of their graves. He says, those who have done what is good will rise to live. Mother Teresa, I saw you guys talking about that. Don't think I didn't. I got you. He says, those who have done what is good will rise to live. But those who have done what is evil or bad will rise to, to be condemned or judged. It's the exact same word as we're kind of talking. He's been talking about judgment. But the danger is we, we, we can't see that. Sometimes we read that and we think, okay, those who've done what is good, that's not based on your performance. That's not, it's not, that's not about religious practice. I'm good if I do the right religious stuff. It's not about like the popular cultural belief that's even like, kind of crept into the church of if my good works outweigh my bad, 
then I'll rise to live. That's not what he's talking about. Because in light of what he just said a couple of verses ago, back to verse 24, what does he say? He says, I tell you, whoever hears, whoever believes will have eternal life and they will not be judged. And so those who've done what is good that will rise to eternal life are those who've heard and those who've believed and they will have life. And conversely, on the flip side, it's like, well, those who are, will rise to face that judgment or condemn are, are those who have heard, but have said, nah, I want that. That's for someone else, not me. And God in his love says, okay, if that's for someone else, not you, I'm, I'm not going to force it on you. He says, listen, I, I have the, the power to give life, to grant forgiveness, because I and the Father are one. Uh, he, he wraps the whole thing up, right? comes to verse 30. This is, this is our last verse. He says, by myself, he kind of comes back to just the same idea. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. My judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So again, this idea over and over, guys, listen to what I'm saying. I'm not saying this on my own. My Father and my will, like they are the same. We are one. I am the perfect representation of the Father's will and the Father's heart here on earth walking around. Now, I know that was a ton, and that was like, a boatload of information really, really fast. Like I said, it was like fire hydrant. Jesus is saying all kinds of words and it's like the Trinity and it's father and son and father and son and eternal life and judgment. Like what is happening here? So let's break it down and wrap this thing up. The core essential, the core teaching within the Christian faith, it's been taught from the very beginning of the church, it's been taught by Jesus himself, is that God is one, but he is also, there's also a plurality within God, the Trinity. There's unity and plurality. There is God the, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. He is God in the flesh. He's the Son of God. He is co-equal with God. He is co-eternal to God. And so what that means is if you ever have this question of going, I want to know what God is like for real, how do I know? You need to look no further than the person of Jesus. And because he is God in the flesh, he has the power to forgive sin because only God can do that. Because he is God in the flesh, Jesus has the power to raise the dead because only God can do that. Because he is God in the flesh, he has the power to breathe new life into people because only God can do that. Maybe you're like, okay, well, that, that sounds great and everything, but why does that matter? Here's what it means for your life because this is the point that we sometimes miss that we have to get Jesus right first before we try to get the other stuff right. If you're like a Christian or follower of Jesus or even if you're considering things, it's like sometimes we want to jump in and be like, I want to follow Jesus and what does this mean for my ethics and my morals and my values and what do I do with my life and, and what about my marriage and my money and kids and sex life and, and work and purpose and meaning and like what, what do I do with all of that stuff? What does Jesus have to say about all those things? And that stuff's all super important and Jesus addresses all of those things and points us in the direction of human flourishing in all of those areas. But if we don't answer the question first of, okay, what is the identity of Jesus? Who is he? If we don't settle that first, we get off in all kinds of directions on the second part of those questions. What do we do with that? Is he who he claimed to be or not? Is he the son of God? Because if the answer is yes, the answer to all those other questions I have is vastly different than if the answer is no. Is he who he claimed to be? And if the answer is yes, then it's like, okay, game on. If he really is the son of God, my life necessarily will look different. If I do the research, if I figure it out, if I investigate, don't, don't just take my word for it, right? Like, look into this stuff. 
If Jesus is who he claims to be, it changes everything for us. I want to wrap things up um, with a quote. It's kind of lengthy. I'm just going to read it straight out of a book. This is from um, C.S. Lewis, and it points to this idea. C.S. Lewis, in, in addition to you know, writing the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, also wrote several theological works. And one of his most famous is probably Mere Christianity. And he says something that, that, that gets to the very heart of what we've been talking about here today. I just want to read this to you, and then I'm going to sing. He says, then comes the real shock. Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he's always existed. He says he's come to judge the world at the end of time. Now, let us get this clear. Among pantheists, like Indians, anyone might say he was a part of God or one with God. There would be nothing very odd about that. But since this man, he's, he's a Jew, he could not mean that kind of God because God in their language meant the being outside of the world, the one who had made it and who was infinitely different from anything else. When you've grasped that, you'll see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. In the mouth of any other speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a, uh, sorry, excuse me, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord 